Amen. Well, thank you, Henry. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Kelly. Um, hope, open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Please take your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 9. I want to begin with a story that may or may not be familiar to you. John Newton is the famous British slave trader who radically converted to Jesus in 1748. He eventually became an Anglican pastor in a little-known little town of 2,500 people called Olney there in England. And he's most famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace that we just sang a moment ago. Now, what you may not know is that Newton is connected to another famous hymn writer named William Cooper, or Cowper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. He wrote the famous hymns, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and also There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, William Cooper was a man who battled incredible seasons of depression, incredible, well-documented seasons of depression. He battled it his entire adult life. But Newton loved Cooper and was determined to care for him. Newton lovingly cared for his friend for 26 years until his death. Cooper did not find relief from his depression. In fact, he even sought to take his own life. But that did not deter Newton from loving his friend. He went on to write this about Cooper. This is what John Newton says about his friend. He says, Mr. Cooper's long stay at my home in his present uncomfortable state has been upon many accounts inconvenient and trying. Cooper was Newton's neediest parishioner and the one that he came home to every day for 26 years, right next to his wife and family. And Newton wrote about this, and he said this. He said, Newton says, I make myself easy by reflecting that the Lord has numbered the days in which I am appointed to wait upon my friend in this dark valley. And he has given us such a love to him, both as a believer and a friend, that I am not weary. Now, Newton cared for his friend because he simply loved him and because he promised to care for him. He pointed his friend to find comfort in the promise of God. Now, my point is, we are intended to live upon the promises of God. We are intended to find comfort in the promises of God. And so Newton wrote to Cooper one day, and he wrote this. He says, though our enemies are mighty, Jesus is above them all. Though he may hide himself from us at moments... He has given us reason to trust Him. Even while we walk in darkness, He has promised to return and gather us to everlasting mercies. Pointing his friend to the promises of God. Now Cooper would write to Newton near the end of his life and he would say this. He wrote about Newton he said, A sincerer or more affectionate friend no man ever had. That's what Cooper writes of his friend John Newton who cared for him. No one ever had a better friend than I did in John. And Newton, during, during Cooper's funeral, he said this. He said, the Lord has given me many friends, but with none have I had so great an intimacy as with my friend, Mr. Cooper. His friendship was based on covenant-keeping kindness. Covenant-keeping kindness. And that is the topic of of my sermon this morning. If you will look 
It's 2 Samuel 9. What you find in 2 Samuel 9 as we turn there is that God has been fulfilling His covenant promises to His people through David. God is keeping His promises. God's king is ruling over God's people in God's place. They're enjoying righteousness and equity, though it's only partially and imperfectly. God has subdued their enemies and given them rest. That's what happened in in chapter 8. And now in chapter 9, we see that David is now contemplating whether or not he has kept his own promises. God has kept his promises. Has David kept his? Particularly, David is thinking about the covenant promises that he made to Jonathan, Saul's son, some 15 to 20 years earlier when David was a simple captain in Saul's army. Now, the author of 2 Samuel assumes that you, the reader, know those promises. That before you get to 2 Samuel, you've read 1 Samuel. And the author assumes that you care whether or not David will keep his word. Like, you should care. This promise goes back 15 or 20 years. Will David keep his promise? After all, how can a king administer justice and equity to others if he himself doesn't keep his own word? And so, 2 Samuel 9 gives us an example of how David's kingdom reflects the coming kingdom of Jesus where every promise will be kept. And so, let's look today at the covenantal kindness of David that reflects the very heart and nature of God. Look at chapter 9, one of the most, one of the most amazing stories in 2 Samuel. It says there, verses, beginning in verse 1, And David said... This is after David is ruling over all of Israel. It says, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And then king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. And Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant Um, So will your servant do. 
So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. I want to break this into two sections. And first, I want you to see the promise of the covenant. The promise of the covenant. In verses 1 through 4, you need a little context. So here's the context for those that don't remember all the way back 15 or 20 years ago to 1 Samuel 20 to the story regarding Jonathan. So, Jonathan, go back with me, Jonathan is Saul's oldest son. He is heir to the throne. He's roughly the same age as David. But Jonathan loves David. Jonathan knows that the Lord has rejected Saul, his father, from being king and has promised to give David the throne. So Jonathan willingly yields his own right to the throne for the sake of David, and he goes beyond that to making a covenant with David to protect David from Saul. Not only will Jonathan spare David and give David the throne, he will save David from Saul. And that's exactly what he does. And and he makes this covenant with David. He says to David this. He says, if I am still alive, this is from 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of your enemies From the face of the earth. That's the covenant. And then remarkably. David a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 24. Makes the same covenant. Not just with Jonathan. But with Saul. If you remember the story. When when Saul was in the cave. And David has handed Saul's life on a silver platter. And David spares Saul in the cave. And cuts off the cord of his robe. He comes outside. And Saul goes, you're more righteous than I. You could have killed me today and you spared me. And then Saul makes this, prompt, makes this covenant with David. Saul says this, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 21. Saul says, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And then verse 20 says, and David made that promise. So David makes a promise to Jonathan and a promise to Saul that I will not destroy your descendants. Now, here's the, here's the thing going on in our text. David knows that Saul and Jonathan are dead. They both died on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistines. He knows that Ishbosheth is dead. David played no part in either of their deaths, though that's exactly what every other king did to their rivals in that day. They murdered their rivals, they killed them. David didn't do that. David could have simply reasoned at this point that because I did not kill Saul, I did not kill Jonathan, I did not kill Ishbosheth, I've kept my word. I've kept my word. I've kept my covenant. I didn't destroy anybody out of anybody's house. So what's David's intention here? What's David wanting to do? Everything in this text hinges on the word kindness. Look there in verses 1, verse 3, and verse 7. David says, I need to show kindness 
to someone of Jonathan of Saul's house for the sake of Jonathan. The word kindness or steadfast love, some translations say. It is the Greek word there, hesed. Everybody say that with me. Hesed. H-E-S-S-E-D. Hesed. It is the word in the Old Testament for God's covenant love for His people. It is the word God uses to describe His unwavering, unfaltering, unending commitment to love His people, care for His people, and bless His people. It is the word that God chooses to demonstrate and display His very heart and nature. And notice that David's intent in verse 3 is to show the kindness of God to someone. Anyone of the line of of Saul. Anyone he can find. And if you didn't notice earlier when I read of David's covenant with with, uh, with Jonathan, it is the very steadfast love of God that is the basis of that covenant. Jonathan says, show me and my house the steadfast, hesed love of the Lord. Now that promise is whether or not Jonathan survives. And of course we know he didn't. Here's the issue at hand. David made that promise some 15 to 20 years ago. And as far as David is concerned, that promise is still in effect. Time and titles did not change the promise. It's been 20 years. I'm now king. Time and titles did not change the promise. David intends to honor his word and let his yes be yes, his no be no, because ultimately this covenant is a reflection of God's covenantal love for his people. Listen, it's for the very sake of righteousness. Sometimes we must do things, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy, No matter how costly, simply because it is right. And to do otherwise would be wrong. That is how covenants work. So what does David do? David finds a servant left from Saul's house whose name is Ziba and shares his intentions to show the steadfast love of God and kindness to whomever is left of Saul's house. And David finds out some surprising news. To his surprise, there is actually a remaining son of Jonathan who is crippled in both of his feet. So our story continues, not only with the promise of the covenant, because David made a promise, but to the provision of the covenant. Notice the provision of the covenant. We learn in verses 4 and following, we learn that there's a remaining son of Jonathan whose name is Mephibosheth living in Lodabar. Now, Lodabar literally means no place. That's what it means. Nobody knows where it is. Most likely, it's beyond the Jordan, outside of Israel's borders. So he's living as an exile. This is the same Mephibosheth that we met back in 2 Samuel 4, where we read this sad story of how he became lame on the day that Jonathan and Saul died on Mount Gilboa. It says there, Jonathan the son of Saul had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. 
He might have broken his back or something like that. But he became lame. And so David sends for Mephibosheth to come to Jerusalem. He sends people to Lodabar to get Mephibosheth to bring him to Jerusalem. And you can tell, by the way, when you read the text, when Mephibosheth shows up, he is terrified of King David. He's terrified, right? It says that he came and bowed low and fell on his face. He paid homage. He even calls himself a dead dog before the king in verse 8. You might be wondering, well, why is Mephibosheth scared? Why is he groveling before David? And the answer, as I alluded to earlier, is simple and plain. Kings kill their rivals. That's what kings do. It's a very practical form of politics. I could make a joke here about some things going on in our world and people falling out of windows, but I won't. It's what people, authoritarians, do when they're in power. You just take out the competition. Okay? So one biblical historian said it quite bluntly. He says this, quote, When a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was Purge. You needn't go wandering into ancient Near East history to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history and watch Basha in 1 Kings or Zimri in 1 Kings or Jehu in 2 Kings to find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. So if King David comes looking for you and you're out hiding in Lodabar, the gig is up. It's over. It's over. Mephibosheth may be lame, but he is not dumb. His lameness is not in his brain. He knows what is at stake when he comes and stands before David. But something happens. David makes his intentions clear by making several promises. Out of nowhere, Mephibosheth, who expects to be destroyed or put to the edge of a sword or made eight to ten inches shorter or strung out on a tree outside of Jerusalem, instead he hears promises from David. Three promises. Three promises. Three provisions of the covenant. Notice these provisions. First, you can write these down. First, David's covenant provided peace. You look at verses 5 through 8. Now again, remember, Saul's family, Saul's house had been at war with David for many years when he was at Hebron in Judah, and Ishbosheth was ruling in Mahanaim. Saul and his army and, their, and, the, and his remaining heirs had long sought to destroy David. This is why Mephibosheth has no thoughts of anyone doing anything nice to him, because his dad, his grandfather, had not been nice to David at all. Retribution was the name of the game. This is why he feared coming to David. So David's very first words are words of peace. His first words are, Mephibosheth, do not fear. Do not fear. It's interesting, that's how God usually speaks to us when, he, when we see him speaking in the Bible. That's the first words God says to us, do not fear. David will not treat Mephibosheth as an enemy. He will instead show him hesed, steadfast covenantal love. This means that Mephibosheth will have peace with David in spite of his grandfather's 
ways, and in fight of Ishbosheth's ways, and in fight of Abner's ways, David will be kind for the sake of Jonathan his father. So the covenant provided peace instead of war and enmity and strife and destruction. Second, notice that the covenant provided an inheritance. In verses 7 and verses 9 and 10, David promises. He says, Mephibosheth, I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father. All the land. Now, most likely, most likely this property was confiscated as David came to power. And so David here is promising much more than the simple promise to Jonathan that I'm not going to kill your descendants. This goes far beyond David's initial promise. David's promise, David's promise was simply not to kill him. Well, he could have not killed him by just leaving him alone in Lodabar. Just leave him there. That's me keeping my promise. No. To show the covenantal steadfast love of God, David says, we're going to have peace, and I'm going to restore to you all of your inheritance, all of the lands of your grandfather. And then notice that third, the covenant provided a new position. Four times in verses 7 through 13, David emphasizes something. Four times he says that Mephibosheth will eat at my table. He will eat at my table. Though Mephibosheth will have his own lands, his own servants, his own fields, his own crops, though he has an inheritance that's been restored, he will eat at David's table. Look at the end of verse 11, underline it, circle it. Why will he eat at David's table? Because he will be treated like one of the king's sons. Think about that. Not only am I giving you peace, not only am I giving you protection, not only am I giving you property, I'm giving you a position. You will be treated like a son. Again, David goes far beyond the mere sparing of Mephibosheth's life. Now, the provision of this covenant is mind-blowing. Mephibosheth will have peace, property, and position as the son of King David. Now, I want to emphasize here, David isn't making these provisions, and he's not making this promise because he is king. We think he can, he's king, he can do what he wants. He's not keeping this promise because he's king. He's keeping this promise because he is a man who made a promise before the Lord, who made a covenant with Jonathan. It isn't because of his position as king, but because of his promise as a friend. That's why in the middle of this section, it quit, he, this text quits calling David king. It just says David. David is doing this. David is doing this. David is doing this. Not the king. David. This promise, listen to me. The promise of the past is what produced present faithfulness in David. The promise of the past is the reason there will be present faithfulness. This is how covenants work, and David knows it. In Psalm 15, David says this, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And he says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, who speaks truth in his heart, who honors those who fear the Lord, and listen to this, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's who will stand before the Lord. Those who swear to their own hurt, who promise to their own hurt and do not change. Now listen, here's what this means for us. In our covenants, all of us have them. We keep our promises because it is a reflection of God's covenant to us. In our marriages, in our homes, in our church, 
in our friendships, in our community, we choose to show the Hesed kindness and steadfast love of God to others. This is something that our world does not and cannot understand apart from Christ. Listen, in a world where everyone drops their promises at the first sign of difficulty, or at the first sign or hint of something better, if the winds blow one different direction, then let it all go. All the promises I made do not matter. I'm on a, I'm on a trip of self-actualization, trying to be authentic to myself. No, you're being self-centered. You're trying to satisfy your own desires, and you're not honoring the covenant that, God has, that you have made before God. Covenants are made for the hard times, not simply because things go well. Listen, in a world that will betray anyone and any and all loyalty for money or pleasure or power, this rings out as a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Listen, I read this anecdote in my studies this week that illustrates this point. You might remember an old movie called Out of Africa with Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. And in this movie, they sit talking on the beach and Streep desperately wants Redford to marry her. That's what she wants. They have this growing romance and it's all feelings and it's all great and beautiful, but she wants a covenant. She wants security in a covenant for their love. And this is what Redford says to her. Quote, Do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? That is the mentality, isn't it, in our culture? Do you think I'll love you more because of a piece of paper? A covenant is a piece of paper, a mere empty formality, right? And of course, the movie line completely misses the point of a marriage covenant. For such a covenant never claims to regulate love's intensity, but only its security. It is secure in the covenant. Listen, and this is what the, the anecdote went to say. What the world does not see is that love that is truly love is willing to bind itself to another. Is willing to promise willingly and gladly obligates itself to the other so that they may stand secure. One does not keep such vows because it is dramatic, but because it is faithful. Faithful. Sometimes you do not keep your covenants because you feel like it, but simply because you promise. Now hear me. Could you trust God if He did not keep His covenant promises? The point is, again... It is secure in the covenant. Now, as I close, I want to point out again the incredible grace and mercy and provision that is freely given to Mephibosheth. Hear me. Mephibosheth is an invalid. He's crippled in both feet. The text stresses at the beginning and end the fact that he is lame. He is helpless and dependent. He cannot walk let alone fight or fend for himself. Second, the text stresses that he is the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. He has the wrong heritage. He is the son of the enemy. He is only spared because David made a promise long ago that no other right-minded politician would make. 
This shows us the heart of David, and more importantly, the heart of God. This is why David is called a man after God's own heart. Hear me. This is why David is a man after God's own heart. Listen, God's heart, think about this. God's heart longs to show even the helpless and even his enemies mercy and grace. Have you thought about that? He longs to invite them to his table as sons and daughters, though they have nothing to offer him. It will only be because of his hesed kindness and steadfast love. This is the, precisely the argument that Paul makes in Romans 5. Listen to Romans 5. Listen, let these words wash over your soul this morning. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Mephibosheth has peace because of a covenant. We have peace because of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And he goes on to say, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're weak, we're ungodly, and Christ died for us anyway. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ungodly, unrighteous sinners, and Jesus chooses to show hesed covenant faithfulness to us and he says since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for while for if while we were still enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now shall we be saved by his life helpless weak enemies who does that sound like well I can tell you who that sounds like in a word, Mephibosheth. Go home today and think for the rest of this afternoon that you are Mephibosheth. That is all of us. Lame, weak, helpless, enemies of God due to our sin. And the only hope we have is a kind king who has made a covenant promise to save those who draw near to him. That is all we have. We have not been treated as we, have been, as we deserve. We have only been treated according to God's hesed kindness in Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. We now have peace. We now have an inheritance. We now have a position as children of God. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. And listen, a promise is only as good as the one who made it. A promise is only as good as the one who made it. And our promise maker is the God who cannot lie and is always faithful. That should blow your mind. We are all Mephibosheth. And I will call your attention lastly to the thief on the cross. Why does he spend eternity in paradise? Was it because he was such a good guy? Was it because he was so useful in the kingdom was because he was baptized was it because he taught Sunday school was it because he gave to missions was it because he did all of the right things was it because he had so much to offer Jesus no <laughs> Jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise 
All Jesus gives him is a promise. And that is enough. Because Jesus made it. All of us go home today. We are Barabbas. We are the thief. We are Mephibosheth. Simply at the mercy of God. And that should work in us gratitude and humility and gratefulness that we have been blessed to receive the grace of Jesus, not because we deserve it, but because he has set his affection on us. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of his word. Will you pray with me? Father, as we move into this time, I pray for those in this room that have never experienced your kindness in Christ. And I pray today would be the day that they lay their sins aside, they lay down their arms, they lay down their enmity, and they come to Christ, ready to be welcomed at the king's table, not because they deserve it, but because they've been invited by grace. So, Father, we ask that you would work now in us to make us joyful, grateful, humble people in light of your grace to us and your covenant faithfulness. We pray this in Christ's name.